Ladies and gentlemen, the following segment of the podcast is presented exclusively by Hillsdale College. Now in its 175th year, Hillsdale is a truly independent institution where learning is prized and intellectual enthusiasm is valued. Thank you for listening and my sincere appreciation to Hillsdale for their sponsorship. He's here. He's here. Now broadcasting from the underground command post. Deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, America. I'm Mark Levin. Our number, 877-381-3811. I think one of the grave problems we have in this country is the uh, provision of news to the American people. And I want to focus on this for a good part of this hour, and there's a lot to get to, a whole ton. Even though it's Friday, we keep the foot on the gas pedal, and we must, particularly at this time of our life and our country's life. Some basic questions for you. What do we mean by a free press? What do we mean by freedom of the press? What is the purpose of a free press? Is it to report information? And what kind of information? Is it to interpret or analyze information? What is the news? How are decisions made about what is newsworthy and what is not? What is a news organization? One person, a blogger, group of people, weekly newspaper, a corporate conglomerate like a television network? What's a journalist? What qualifies someone as a journalist? Experience, education, position, self-identification? What's the job of a journalist? Is journalism a profession? Are there standards? Are journalists able to be fair or objective? What is the purpose of reporting? To reinforce the founding and fundamental principles of the republic? To challenge public officials and authority? To give voice to certain individuals, groups, and causes? To influence politics and policy? To alter the status quo of a society? To promote the so-called common good of the community? What is the common good? And who decides? What is the difference between freedom of the press and free speech? Does the current media revolution, spurred by technological advances such as the internet and social media, change any of this? Do these questions even matter anymore to news outlets? The questions are rarely asked today, let alone rationally discussed. They're infrequently the subject of open or public media circumspection or focused and sustained national debate. It seems the so-called media are low to investigate or explore the so-called media. But when the conduct of the media is questioned as biased, politically partisan, or otherwise irresponsible, they insist that they're of one mission, fidelity to the news and all that stems from it protecting society from autocratic government, defending freedom of the press, and contributing to societal civility and justice. And they typically claim to pursue and report the news free from any personal or political agenda. Is that true? 
Yes, this is from Unfreedom of the Press, but we need a refresher given what's going on around us. More than 70 years ago, there was a serious self-examination of the media. The Commission on Freedom of the Press was organized in 1942 by Time and Life magazine publisher Henry Luce to explore whether freedom of the press was in danger and the proper function of the media in a modern democracy. Its report was in 1947, 73 years ago, and concluded, in part, that freedom of the press was indeed in danger, and for three basic reasons, and I quote, First, the importance of the press to the people has greatly increased with the development of the press as an instrument of mass communication. At the same time, the development of the press as an instrument of mass communication has greatly decreased the proportion of the people who can express their opinions and ideas through the press. Second, the few who are able to use the machinery of the press as an instrument of mass communication have not provided a service adequate to the needs of the society. Third, those who direct the machinery of the press have engaged from time to time in practices which the society condemns and which, if continued, it will inevitably undertake to regulate or control. And so the commission put out this warning. The modern press itself is a new phenomenon. Its typical unit is the great agency of mass communication. These agencies can facilitate thought and discussion, and they can stifle it. They can advance the progress of civilization, or they can thwart it. They can debase and vulgarize mankind. They can endanger the peace of the world. They can do so accidentally in a fit of absence of mind. They can play up or down the news and it's significant. Foster and feed emotions, create complacent fictions and blind spots. Misuse the great words and uphold empty slogans. Their scope and power are increasing every day as new instruments become available to them. These instruments can spread lies faster and farther than our forefathers dreamed when they enshrine the freedom of the press and the First Amendment to our Constitution. And so the commission cautioned that with the means of self-destruction that are now at their disposal, men must live, if they are to live at all, by self-restraint, moderation, and mutual understanding. They get their picture of one another through the press. The press can be inflammatory, sensational, and irresponsible. And if it is... And its freedom will go down in universal catastrophe too. On the other hand, the press can do its duty by the new world that is struggling to be born. It can help create a world community by giving men everywhere knowledge of the world and of one another by promoting comprehension and appreciation of the goals of a free society that shall embrace all men. And so I ask you, is this how the modern media conduct themselves? Self-restraint, measured and temperate? Are the media providing knowledge and insight useful to the public in a free society? Or are they obsessed with their own personal, political, and progressive predilections and peaks? Have the media earned the respect and esteem of their readers, viewers, and listeners as fair and reliable purveyors of information? Or are large numbers of the citizenry suspicious and distrustful of their reporting? Are the media on a trajectory of self-destruction, unofficially identifying with one political party, the Democrat Party? Over the other, the Republican Party. In point of fact, most newsrooms and journalists have done a very poor job of upholding the tenets of their profession and ultimately have done severe damage to press freedom. 
Many millions of Americans do not respect them or trust them as credible, fair-minded, and unbiased. And that has nothing to do with the presidency of Donald Trump. It predates the presidency of Donald Trump, but it certainly has come to a high point with his presidency and the way the media have treated him, the people around him, and the people who support him. Now, I talk at great length about propaganda and pseudo-events in this book. And we're getting a heavy dose, if not a constant dose, of both. Here's a perfect example. The President of the United States never encouraged Americans to drink disinfectants. He never encouraged Americans to shoot disinfectants into their system. And the media have pushed this all day long, and they're still pushing it. And they're still pushing it. Meanwhile, you have a soon-to-be nominee of the largest political party in the country, the Democrat Party, in the name of Joe Biden, whom the whole world knows is suffering from some form of dementia, who needs to be taken care of by his wife and his family, but instead they push him out there. He can't complete words. He can't complete sentences. He can't remember what happened the day before. It's not just embarrassing, it's humiliating to him. And so the very same media that puts words in the president's mouth and spin them in a way that seeks to destruct him, excuse me, destroy him, and is destructive of both the media and our society, is obviously covering up for Joe Biden the way they covered up for Barack Obama's policies. And when it comes to the coronavirus, the media hasn't been up to the job. They politicize every decision the president makes. You cannot distinguish between real news people and people who give their opinions anymore. It's impossible. And the more left-wing they are, the more impossible it becomes. We have groupthink like we've never seen before. There is no intellectual or substantive diversity in our newsrooms today. Period. Period. And the worst of them is the New York Times. The worst of them is the New York Times. So I want to spend a little bit more time on the New York Times for those who need a refresher. We're not going to do this all night. We've got a lot going on here. In 1984, Dr. David S. Wyman, in his book, The Abandonment of the Jews, explained that one reason ordinary Americans were not more responsive to the plight of European Jews during the Holocaust was that very many, probably a majority, were unaware of Hitler's extermination program until well into 1944 or later. Now, how can that be? 
He wrote, the information was not readily available to the public because the mass media treated the systematic murder of millions of Jews as though it were minor news. And yet on November 24, 1942, unambiguous evidence of the Nazis' ongoing extermination was made publicly available, but was largely ignored by the media. Lack of solid press coverage in the weeks immediately following November 24, 1942, muffled the historic news at the outset, he writes. In the United States, Wyman asserted, two or three clear statements from Franklin Roosevelt would have moved this news into public view and kept it there for some time. But the president was not so inclined. Nor did Washington reporters press him. In retrospect, I'm quoting, seems almost unbelievable that in Roosevelt's press conferences, normally held twice a week, not one word was spoken about the mass killing of European Jews until almost a year later. The president had nothing to say to reporters on the matter, and no correspondent asked him about it. Now surely the New York Times, with its wide reach, resources, access to foreign sources of information, reputation as the foremost newspaper in America, its large Jewish readership and its Jewish ownership would do everything possible to investigate and disclose the horrors of Jewish genocide, right? But the opposite was true. Wyman explained that the Times, Jewish-owned but anxious not to be seen as Jewish-oriented, was the premier American newspaper of the era. It printed a substantial amount of information on Holocaust-related events, but almost always buried it on the inner pages. In the Washington Post... Jewish-owned Washington Post printed a few editorials advocating rescue, but only infrequently carried news reports on the European Jewish situation. The other newspapers in Washington provided similarly limited information on the mass murder of Jews. And most of the other press, outside New York and Washington, press coverage was even thinner. Why am I talking about such a thing? Because these newspapers are reprehensible. If they weren't going to report on the Holocaust, do you expect them to report truthfully on the coronavirus? Emory University professor Deborah Lipstadt, in her book Beyond Belief, saw the media's self-censorship during the Holocaust as a broadly institutional problem. And she wrote that the press bears a great measure of responsibility for the public skepticism and ignorance of the scope of the wartime tragedy, that is, the mass murder of the Jews. The public's doubts were strengthened and possibly even created by the manner in which the media told the story. If the press didn't help plant the seeds of doubt in readers' minds, it did little to eradicate them. During the war, journalists frequently said that the news of deportations and executions did not come from eyewitnesses who could personally confirm what had happened, and they, as journalists, were obliged to treat it skeptically. This explanation is faulty because much of the information came from German statements, broadcasts, and newspapers. In other words, the Nazis were bragging about it. They weren't hiding it. If anything, these sources would have been inclined to deny, not verify the news. Lipstadt's research also found that for much of the war, the Roosevelt administration whitewashed or de-emphasized the Nazi eradication of Jews, and the mass media were compliant regurgitating the government's propaganda or suppressing the evidence. She explained that the Office of War Information, working in tandem with the Roosevelt information, tried to severely limit any public attention paid to the mass murder of the Jews. Despite the fact that the final solution was the prime illustration of the enemy's strategy and principles, 
The Office of War Information wanted to be avoided, avoided by news agencies and not mentioned in war propaganda. I'm not reading this because I'm Jewish. I'm not reading this because it's a strange anniversary of the Holocaust. I'm reading this because the same newspapers that are leading the way on this virus covered up the greatest mass murder in modern times while they knew it was taking place. The New York Times, the Washington Post, television newsrooms, radio newsrooms. Roosevelt didn't want it out. They complied with Roosevelt and they covered it up. They censored it. And we turned these news outlets to get information about the virus. And they tell us today that the President of the United States is promoting the drinking of disinfectant when he never said any such thing. More when I return. Mark Lovin. If you and your family are finding yourself at home with extra time on your hands these days, I know an excellent way to fill it. Take a free online course from Hillsdale College. Hillsdale offers dozens of online courses on topics, including the U.S. Constitution, economics, history, and literature. Right in your own home, on demand, and absolutely free of charge. Hillsdale students learn the inspiring history of America. Now you can, too, with Hillsdale's newest free online course, The Great American Story, A Land of Hope. Learning and teaching our children about America's past is essential for preserving liberty in the future. Register right now to take this free online course, The Great American Story. It's a production masterpiece, and it paints a picture of America as a land of hope founded on high principles. This course and dozens of others on a variety of topics are available to you and your family for free right now. Go to levinforhillsdale.com, L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. Would you respect any business, let alone a media business, that spent time covering up the Holocaust? It gets worse. The same newspaper, less than 10 years earlier, in its news pages, was writing columns in defense of Joseph Stalin starving to death through planned genocide millions of Ukrainians. I'll be right back. If you and your family are finding yourself at home with extra time on your hands these days, I know an excellent way to fill it. Take a free online course from Hillsdale College. Hillsdale offers dozens of online courses on topics, including the U.S. Constitution, economics, history, and literature. Right in your own home, on demand, and absolutely free of charge. Hillsdale students learn the inspiring history of America. Now you can, too, with Hillsdale's newest free online course, The Great American Story, A Land of Hope. Learning and teaching our children about America's past is essential for preserving liberty in the future. Register right now to take this free online course, The Great American Story. 
It's a production masterpiece, and it paints a picture of America as a land of hope founded on high principles. This course and dozens of others on a variety of topics are available to you and your family for free right now. Go to levinforhillsdale.com, L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. about the tea party we are the tea party call in now 877-381-3811 now i have to cover the new york post here 90 percent in hospital with covid had pre-existing conditions 90 percent 64 percent of state deaths were aged over 70 years old we have a lot of information now in which to open this economy and direct our resources. We've had this information, quite frankly, for a long time. Long time, meaning weeks. Yet the nursing homes were the least protected in New York by the governor. Cuomo order strains nursing homes. The first coronavirus patient submitted to a Queens nursing home under a controversial state mandate arrived along with some grim accessories, a supply of body bags, The Post has learned. An executive at the facility, previously free of the deadly disease, said the bags were in the shipment of personal protective equipment received the same day the home was forced to begin treating two people with COVID who'd been discharged from hospitals. My colleague noticed that one of the boxes was extremely heavy. Curious as to what could possibly be making that particular box so much heavier than the rest, he opened it. The first two coronavirus patients were accompanied by five body bags. Within days, three of the bags held the first of 30 residents from this one nursing home who would die there after Governor Cuomo's Department of Health and Mental Hygiene handed down its March 25th directive that bars nursing homes from refusing to admit medically stable coronavirus patients, the executive said, like clockwork. The nursing home had received five body bags a week, every week, from city officials. Cuomo has blood on his hands. He really does. There's no way to sugarcoat this, the executive added. Now, that was March 25th. We got a call into this program on March 26th by Elaine Healy. I didn't know who she was at the time, but she's vice president of medical affairs and a medical director. And uh, she provides medical leadership for United Hebrew Skilled Nursing Facility, oversees the overall quality of care to ensure that we maintain the highest level of health care. This is from their site and so forth. She called this program on March 6th. Excuse me, on March 26th. When you look at how Cuomo has handled this, the decisions on the subways cost lives. The decisions about the public buses cost lives. The decisions about not having ventilators. The decision on reducing hospital beds. The decision to run massive debt and not support his health care system. And the decision to send COVID-19 positive patients from the hospitals into the nursing homes. Where the senior citizens are the most vulnerable human beings in this country on the planet to this virus. He sends them into the nursing homes. And I want to remind you what this caller said because I was shocked. This is over a month ago. 
Her name was Elaine. It turns out her name is Elaine Healy, a doctor. Cut 17, go. Elaine, New Rochelle, New York, the great WABC, go. Now that's the EPA of epicenters. Go ahead. Yes, hello. Thank you very much for taking Mm -hmm. my call. Um, I wanted to bring to your attention and the listeners' attention uh, what is about to happen in New York uh, with respect to nursing homes. And uh, the governor has ordered that all nursing homes must accept uh, COVID-positive patients that are actually uh, potentially still infectious into um, into their facilities. And this will um, put our residents, our long-term care population. Wait, 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 wait. Are you, is this, are you pulling my leg seriously? No. Why would you send somebody who has this virus into a population that can kill people? Thank you. No, no, are well, you serious? I'm, I'm, I am serious. Well why, well, why would he order this? I don't, it doesn't make any sense. Memo, well, because, because the hospitals, well, first of all, in, you know, I, I will uh, point out that nursing homes are in the habit of accepting patients from hospitals to continue their care after their... They may be in the habit, but they must realize now that the most vulnerable people among us are senior citizens. And nursing homes, these are people that have issues. And so I'm trying to understand the point of this. What is the point of this? I'm looking at a directive from Andrew Cuomo and Howard Zucker dated March 25th that is ordering nursing homes. It says nursing homes must comply with the expedited receipt of residents from hospitals. They are deemed appropriate to go into the nursing homes by the hospitals, and we cannot discriminate based on the presence of COVID. And that's it. And that's how he's been managing this crisis. He has been dictating. He's been sending out memorandum and orders and executive orders, and there has been no coordination uh, on the ground level. Here I'm speaking from Westchester and New Rochelle. Just uh, we, we had the first COVID positive right. case in New York. And uh, we were, uh, for a time, the epicenter. And now, of course, it's shifted a little. Now, south let's stop us. here. This, this, was, this is a call from March 26th. Turns out it was Elaine Healy. COVID-19 has killed at least 3,540 residents of New York's nursing homes and adult care facilities as of Wednesday. Because this guy ordered, ordered that those nursing homes are going to accept coronavirus patients from the hospitals into the nursing homes. 64% of the state deaths were of uh, individuals aged 70 and older. This is so appalling and shocking to me. But of course, the media that covered up the Holocaust, the media that was a mouthpiece for Stalin, what do you expect from this media? They want you to believe that the President of the United States wants you to drink Clorox. And they spend all day on this, or all day on trashing Fox, or all day trashing me, or Dr. Now. They're going after Dr. Ioannidis because he's not, you know, part of the mob. Continue with the call, please. Go. But um, 
basically, as you know, the hospitals are overwhelmed. They want to discharge patients somewhere else so they can take in new patients. And um, that's what the governor has ordered. Now, and by the way, it turned our- out the hospitals were not as overpopulated as they had predicted, didn't it? Go ahead. Um, National Association of Nursing Home Medical Directors, uh, when I sent this memorandum uh, to them, uh, has issued a statement saying that this is extremely dangerous, unsafe, that it will increase the risk of transmission in nursing homes. And we all learned from Washington how catastrophic that is. Um, It will uh, destabilize the facilities, uh, potentially increase the flow back into hospitals, overwhelm capacity, endanger healthcare personnel, and escalate the death rate. So, um, but you can't get through to anybody down here. Uh, you can't. You can't talk to anybody. We don't, we don't have. Support. There's nobody coordinating the response at this level. At, at certainly at the county level. And I know from my prior. Have, life, have you have you given this information to local media? That's why I'm calling you. But I'm not local and media. Yes. Have you given yes. this info? Hold on now. To information, these reporters show up at these press events uh, where Cuomo does these, uh, you know, kind of dance, song and dance moves there, always demanding that somebody else do something else. This needs to be in the hands of a reporter who is at that conference in Albany and reads it to him and asks him how he can explain this. Yeah, that's a good idea. I mean, it's not my line of work, but I got it to, uh, we got this information to the Wall Street Journal who published uh, something today. So that's the first thing, uh, first time we've got it out to the media. And, you know, it's not what we generally So, do. so in other words, it's available for all these cable stars and all these uh, reporters at the uh, New York Daily News and the New York Times and the rest of them. They know it's out there. Well, if they read that article, I don't know who else picked up on the story. We we got it. It was published today in the Wall Street Journal, one article. So um, now now our executive um, organization, the executive director, this afternoon issued the statement, uh, you know, stating that our organization was against this. If if we wanted to find that, do you know where would we go to find the link? I can send it to you, but it's uh, it's the American Medical Directors Association. It has a uh, a longer um, name that I'll give you in a moment, and I'm sure it's on its website. You might have to be a member to get it, but we we can get it to you uh, through our executive director. Um, the, it's the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Just, just go on my Facebook site and post it. Post the link. Okay. All right. Mark Levin yes. Show Facebook or Mark Levin Show Twitter, either one. Yeah, and then the, and then the and whole we'll, country can look at it and draw conclusions from it. And I just want to say, if I could, you know, nursing homes and the and people that work at nursing homes are are such a dedicated group of professionals. Oh yes, yes. And, and we really want to help. But so you're a have, doctor. I'm a medical director. I'm a physician medical and medical director. I'm both. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm an administrative medical director plus a you know a clinician, okay. and um, our our home is a wonderful facility. But you know it's 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 going to affect all area nursing homes any minute now. Well, and if this is if this is right, this is exactly the wrong thing that you're that he's doing. 
Yeah, I mean, understand, and he's, he's backed himself into a corner here. And, and all of this should have been planned out, as I believe you. Uh, you I've talked about it over and over and over again that, look, you can never be fully prepared for these things, but you could be better prepared. <clears throat> and since these things are really the states want to control their hospitals, their beds, their ventilators, their MRIs, their CTs, their uh, medical institutions and so forth, and they do. And so the question is, he's been there some time now, why didn't he at least prioritize uh, health services in case there's a pandemic? He was aware of it. There's been reports put out that New York is uh, sorely unprepared. He's had opportunities to, uh, to order significantly more beds and ventilators over the years, but he hasn't done it. He hasn't. Not only that, he's closed. I mean, in my neighborhood. And you're telling me you can't even get to him. Oh, we can't get to anybody. You can't get to anybody. There's supposed to be somebody at the county level. But wait a minute. He keeps putting out phone numbers and websites during his press conferences. You are the medical director of a nursing home. This order goes out, and you can't reach anybody. You can't reach anybody. And, and not only that, there's supposed to be someone at the county level that's mm-hmm. coordinating. Let's say, I mean, I, it is not a good I only idea. have 30 seconds. All right. Uh, there's no coordination of the response here in Westchester. It's just a series of directives. He's behaving like a dictator. Uh, executive directors, orders for... Well, he wanted market. Trump to nationalize businesses. All right, I'm live now. That is harrowing. Absolutely harrowing. You know, we have these stories about how this virus is racist and sexist. Of course, the virus is not racist and sexist. You have communities in this country uh, where the individuals don't eat properly or don't have access to proper food or what have you. Here we have something that took place because of a horrific decision resulting in the death of God knows how many senior citizens. And the article she's talking about in the Wall Street Journal was printed the same day as her call to me. New York told nursing home operators they will be required to accept patients infected with the new coronavirus who are discharged from hospitals, but may still be convalescing amid more cases in the state that are straining the health care system. We've got an extraordinarily vulnerable population on our hands, said Christopher Laxton, executive director of the group. Nursing homes older, often frail residents are particularly susceptible to the virus. If I had a parent or a grandparent that died in one of these nursing homes as a result of this coronavirus, I would sue the crap out of the state of New York, and I would sue Cuomo directly. And while he may have some form of immunity, I'd make them prove it. I'd punish him in depositions and interrogatories. The New York Post today. Administrators at these nursing homes told the Post they too have received body bags and weekly supply shipments, which City Hall confirmed the state DOH was distributing to nursing homes. One of the Manhattan administrators said the state's admission mandate came with no warning or even time to prepare facilities for an influx of coronavirus patients who the state says says must be quarantined inside nursing homes and treated by separate staffers. 
By the time I even got to the work to work the next day, I had phone calls, emails from just about every hospital in the area. The administrator said previously the person at it, the facility had required two negative test results before we'd even consider taking someone into the building. These nursing homes and assisted living facilities, the virus went viral and killed an inordinate number of these senior citizens because of Cuomo and de Blasio, because they follow the science, you see, in New York. I'm not done with this. I'll be right back. Mark Levin. If you and your family are finding yourself at home with extra time on your hands these days, I know an excellent way to fill it. Take a free online course from Hillsdale College. Hillsdale offers dozens of online courses on topics, including the U.S. Constitution, economics, history, and literature. Right in your own home, on demand, and absolutely free of charge. Hillsdale students learn the inspiring history of America. Now you can, too, with Hillsdale's newest free online course, The Great American Story, A Land of Hope. Learning and teaching our children about America's past is essential for preserving liberty in the future. Register right now to take this free online course, The Great American Story. It's a production masterpiece, and it paints a picture of America as a land of hope founded on high principles. This course and dozens of others on a variety of topics are available to you and your family for free right now. Go to levinforhillsdale.com, L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. A day or two ago, Cuomo was asked about this, and he pled ignorance, and he's a liar. He's an absolute liar, because these nursing homes and their association were screaming at the top of their proverbial lungs about this. And the New York Post says Cuomo also doubled down on his remark a day earlier, that it's not our job to provide nursing homes with personal protective equipment, We've given them thousands and thousands of PPE. Well, PPE, you got, you got people one next to the next uh, other, one next to the other with this, uh, with this virus. And you move them into the, into the nursing homes? This is what I mean, the insanity of some of these governors and the, and the fraudulence of some of these so-called scientists and doctors. Cuomo. Well, the people are going to run this clown's press conference every day. Ask him a few damn questions. That was preventable. It was on my show five weeks ago. And we're heard by millions and millions of people, including the jerks in the media who like to twist my words. Unbelievable. How many senior citizens in nursing homes and assisted living facilities have died as a result of decisions by governors like Cuomo and Newsom and Pritzker and on and on? That would be a very, very good study, don't you think, ladies and gentlemen? I'd like to know. I'll be right back. From the Westwood One Podcast Network. He's here. 
now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, America. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811, 877-381-3811. So you know what Cuomo's cronies are saying? He didn't know about it. You know what else they're saying? Well, we need to investigate this nursing, these nursing homes to see why they didn't handle this properly. And the note, you know what the New York Times is saying about all this? Nothing. Nothing. I had Ron DeSantis on Life, Liberty, and Levin a couple of weeks ago on the Fox show. And he specifically said, we know from the data. He said this two or three weeks ago. Among other groups, the senior citizens are the most vulnerable. So we've put out directives to our nursing homes, our assisted living areas, and so forth. And so. so they targeted those areas. You see, ladies and gentlemen, what's happened here? is this broad-based sheltering directive the Fauci, Burks, Cuomo, the rest of them, I believe in the end it will be shown to have cost lives in multiple ways. Let me repeat myself. I believe in the end it will be shown to have cost lives. Number one, when you're not focusing your resources and your governmental personnel, let alone private sector, hospital care, and so forth, on the most vulnerable populations, and you're spreading it thin, almost by definition, then, the people who are most vulnerable are not going to get the protection they need, and more of them are going to die. I believe that's, that's happened. Number two, the death of all those who don't have the coronavirus, but have some other Morbidity, which we've talked about for weeks and weeks at length. Heart disease, cancer, strokes, and on and on and on. They may well have, could have been addressed and so forth and so on. And yet got worse. In some cases, people died. You're going to see a spike in those. That's number two. Number three, there's been severe damage to our hospital system and to our medical system. Severe damage. Did you hear about the Mayo Clinic, America? The Mayo Clinic's one of the top hospitals in the world. In Minnesota. The Mayo Clinic is now going to furlough or reduce pay of 30,000 employees. 42% of its employees across all its campuses in an attempt to mitigate the financial losses from the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, what does that mean? Because of all the work they've done on the pandemic? No, because all of the work that they weren't able to do on patients with other morbidities. They're operating at 35 to 40% capacity. Surgical volume is at 25 to 30% of the level That was expected. 60% of the Mayo Clinic's business comes from elective procedures. 
of the kind of they're on hold. And they need to make reductions in savings of $1.4 billion. Of course, there's a hiring freeze. And it's tapping into its rainy day fund of $900 million, and it's running out. And institutions all over America are doing the same thing. All over America. And that's not to say what's going on in doctor's offices that are not, like the Mayo Clinic and so forth, big facilities that are famous. You have pediatricians, internists, general practitioners, call them what you will, with small practices, maybe one or two or three, a group of five, that are going broke, that are not making it. So the effects on our healthcare system have been enormous. And it's never discussed. Instead, we get these these ridiculous discussions about whether the president told people to drink disinfectant. I mean, it's just so repulsive. So outrageous. What's going on? And of course, there's a piece by a very brilliant man, I don't know him, John Daniel Davidson. And he writes in The Federalist, instead of flattening the curve, we flattened hospitals, doctors, and the U.S. healthcare system. When the lockdowns began last month, we were told that if we didn't stay home, our hospitals would be overwhelmed with coronavirus patients. This is what Fauci said. This is what Burke said. Intensive care wards would be overrun. This is what Cuomo said. There wouldn't be enough ventilators, and some people would probably die in their homes for lack of care. To maintain capacity in the healthcare system, we all had to go on lockdown, not just the big cities, but everywhere in the country. So we stayed home. Businesses closed. Tens of millions of Americans lost their jobs. But with the exception of New York City, the overwhelming surge of coronavirus patients never really appeared at least not in the predicted numbers, which have been off by hundreds of thousands. During a press conference Wednesday, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis noted that health experts initially projected 465,000 Floridians would be hospitalized because of the coronavirus by April 24th. But as of April 22nd, the number is slightly more than 2,000. Governor DeSantis mentioned that on my program. Even in New York, where Governor Andrew Cuomo said last month he'd need 30,000 ventilators, hospitals never came close to needing that many. The projected peak need was about 5,000, and actual usage may have been even lower. Overflow measures have also proven unnecessary. On Tuesday, President Trump said the USNS Comfort, the Navy hospital ship that had been deployed to New York to provide emergency care for the coronavirus patients, will be leaving the city. The ship had been prepared to treat 500 patients. As of Friday, only 71 beds were occupied. An Army field hospital set up in Seattle's pro football stadium shut down earlier this month without ever having a single patient. It's the same story in much of the... In Texas, where this week Governor Greg Abbott 
began gradually loosening lockdown measures, including a prohibition on most medical procedures. Hospitals are not overwhelmed. In Dallas and Houston, where the coronavirus cases are concentrated in the state, makeshift overflow centers that have been under construction might not be used at all. And I remember specifically Dr. Burks picking out these metropolitan areas as the next hotspots. Detroit, Michigan, Chicago, Dallas, New Orleans, Philadelphia. In Illinois, where hospitals across the state scrambled to stock up on ventilators last month, fewer than half of them have been put to use. And as of Sunday, only 757 of 1,345 ventilators were being used by COVID-19 patients. In Virginia, only about 22% of the ventilator supply is being used. Meanwhile, hospitals and healthcare systems nationwide are furloughing and laying off thousands and thousands of employees. Why? Because the vast majority of most hospitals' revenues come from elective or so-called non-essential procedures. We're not talking about LASIK eye surgery, but things like coronary angioplasty and stents, procedures that are necessary but maybe not emergencies yet. If hospitals can't perform these procedures because governors have actually banned them, then they can't pay their bills or their employees. To take just one example, a friend who works in a cardiac intensive unit ICU in rural Virginia called recently and told me about how they had reorganized their entire system around caring for the coronavirus patients. They had canceled most so-called non-essential procedures, imposed furloughs and pay cuts, created a special ICU ward for patients with COVID-19. So far, they've had one patient. One. The nurses assigned to the ward have very little to do. In the entire area covered by this hospital, only about 30 people have tested uh, positive for the COVID-19. I'm sure the governors and health officials who ordered these lockdowns meant well, he says. They based their decisions on deeply flawed and woefully inaccurate models. And they should have been less panicky and more skeptical. But they were facing a completely new disease about which, thanks to China, they had almost no reliable information. But in hindsight, it seems clear that treating the entire country as if it were New York City was a huge mistake that has cost millions of Americans jobs and destroyed untold amounts of wealth. And that's Fauci and Burks, amongst others. Now that we know our hospitals aren't going to be overrun by COVID cases, governors and mayors should immediately reverse course and begin opening their states and communities for business. Of course, some are already. And of course, they're coming under brutal attack. Right here, behind this microphone. I defended the governor of Georgia, the first one to do it, three days ago. And I will defend any governor who responsibly opens their state. And he is responsibly opening his state. He's put out statement after statement saying, I'm listening to my health officials. I'm looking at my data. I'm making decisions based on what I see in my own state. As are other governors, the more responsible ones. Yes, public officials responsible for the lockdowns will no doubt claim that without these draconian measures, our hospitals surely would have been overwhelmed. And who knows? Maybe they would have. It's an unfalsifiable assertion. But at this point, we should all be able to agree that the predictions were way off. And not just because they didn't take into account stay-at-home orders or business closures. Because they did. The experts in this case were wrong. The best thing governors and mayors can do now is admit as much, start lifting their lockdown orders so people, including doctors and nurses, can get back to work.
I noticed National Pubic Radio and ProPubica and all these other sites that attack me on my concern about the the bad data, as I saw it, on the mortali- uh, on the yeah on the fatality rates, the mortality rates. They're not attacking me on that anymore. I wonder why, Mister Producer. I wonder why. Britt Hume has asked a question. I linked to it on uh, Mark Levin's show, Facebook, Mark Levin's show, Twitter, even though it isn't linked to any of my stuff. That's his problem, not mine. And I don't really care. But I want him to know what I know. And he said that the, uh, it may turn out that the reaction to this was catastrophically wrong. Really, you think? May turn out to be exactly right. Which is exactly why I brought to your attention experts, doctors, scholars who are taking issue with the Andrew Cuomo approach. You look at California. You see what's going on in California? There's been a tick up in people with the coronavirus. And people are saying, geez, what happened here? I mean, Governor Newsom was one of the first out of the box. He's locked that state down like a bank vault. He's locked it down. His popularity ratings are up there with uh, Saddam Hussein's. Well, that's the point, isn't it? Isn't it? What are you talking about, Mark? It depends how you do a lockdown, doesn't it? It depends who's sheltering. It's depend, it depends on what the focus of the resources are. California's a perfect example. Everybody says, luckily, California didn't turn into New York. Well, New York City has this subway system where they made the decision to have fewer cars, so more people were in fewer cars, an incredibly volatile situation, making it even a more dense population on these cars. They did the same with their public buses. You saw the MTA people, these poor people were dying at record numbers more than anybody else because they're all packed in like sardines. Then you see the governor's decision when it comes to the nursing homes, exactly the wrong thing. Sending coronavirus infected individuals into nursing homes. Bad decisions at the local and state level in New York and bad consequences. Now, Newsom hasn't done that, but he shut down the whole state, pretty much. And now they can't understand it. The curve is, is not as flat as we'd like it to be. It's kind of unflattening a little bit. Why? Anybody know why? Because although far more people in California have had this virus and have gone through it and don't even know it, 55 to 80 times as many as have been tested, It's a huge state, and millions of people have not had this virus yet. So now they're going to get it. That's why. Because Governor Newsom shut the state down like a bank vault. There's consequences for that. I'll be right back. Mark Levin. In today's digital age, where cyber threats loom larger than ever, safeguarding your personal information is paramount. 
So why is Congress considering a law that could put your credit card data at greater risk of being hacked and exposed to foreign networks? This Durbin Marshall credit card bill could jeopardize your financial data, make it more susceptible to cyber intrusions. It's a controversial bill that proposes a shift in billions of dollars worth of consumer transactions to payment networks that lack the robust security measures consumers rely on. Who could possibly want that? Well, the answer, woke corporate megastores seeking to inflate their multi-billion dollar profit margins. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill will undermine our safe and convenient payment systems and endanger your data security. It's time to take a stand. Visit electronicpaymentscoalition.org. Make your voice heard. Tell your senators to oppose the radical Durbin Marshall credit card bill paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. Let me show you how this works. No sooner that I talk about this nursing home fiasco, no sooner does the New York Post have a front page article on it. Michael Goodwin's written an excellent piece about it in the New York Post today as well. I played for you our caller, eight or nine minutes of it, from March 26th. There's this group called ProPublica. I call it ProPubica. This is a group that has attacked me. It is a front group, a left-wing group. Newsbusters has done an excellent job in exposing who funds them. And so they put out a report now that the nation's nursing homes are responsible for not having the proper equipment and so forth for these coronavirus uh, situations. They killed anywhere from 20 to 25 percent of the people who've died in this country have died in nursing homes. Which makes you wonder, so why is everybody else huddled in their homes? And so what they're going to do is the decisions by mayors and commissioners and governors in some states, not all, to send coronavirus positive patients into nursing homes will now be the fault of the nursing homes. Even though they strongly objected to taking them. Because they want to deflect attention from the likes of Cuomo and others who made these decisions. That's our media. Propaganda operation. That's our media. The state concedes, writes Goodwin, that 3,448 residents of nursing homes or adult care facilities are known to have died from the virus, or nearly 25% of all those who died in New York. More than 2,000 of the total are in the five boroughs, and officials acknowledge that the real numbers are almost certainly higher. And they're certainly right. So you could have upwards of one-third of all the deaths in New York as a result of the coronavirus were in nursing homes and adult care facilities. And who sent the coronavirus patients into these nursing homes? It was Andrew Cuomo. And so ProPubica can do its best propaganda job at once. But you've got me right here behind this microphone, and unless I'm hit by a bus, nobody's going to silence me. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. 
Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. The liberals and the Republicans don't like him, but America does. You can call Mark Levin at 877-381-3811. I want to make it abundantly clear. That we hit this issue of the nursing homes thanks to that caller on March 26th. And from that time until now, give or take a day, from that time until now, not a single major news organization covered it. Not a single major journalist covered it. Not a single White House correspondent confronted Burks or Fauci with it. Not one. And now you'll see, because ProPubica, which is a left-wing front group, puts out a story attacking the nursing homes, that'll be the focus to take the heat off the governors, particularly Democrat governors, particularly Cuomo, who set in place policies that killed people, or as the liberals like to say, got blood on their hands. And so this evening at 5.14 p.m., I take credit for none of it, but they're a little slow, the New York Times, sort of like with the Holocaust. They have a story on the nursing homes because ProPubica put out information, so they figure they better take a look at this. Wait till I tell you what they have to say. But this is important. So 25% to one-third of the people who've perished in this country as a result of this virus have been in nursing homes or assistant care facilities. That means that even a more massive percentage of the population that's died is over 70 years old. And in New York, over 90% of the people who've died from this virus had two to three comorbidities. So the shutting down of the economy with the overwhelming vast majority of the people would not face death, we certainly know that today, is indefensible. Indefensible. And I suspect that's what the governor of Georgia sees. The governor of Florida, the governor of Texas, the governor of Oklahoma, the governor of South Carolina. Yes, the left-wing governor of Colorado. The governor, I believe I said, of South Carolina and others. Yet You look at the governor of Michigan. You look at the governor of New York, the governor of California. All these hardcore blue states. The foot remains on the throat. They are horribly mismanaging this virus. For over 30 years, the MRC has distinguished itself as one of the most effective conservative organizations. They provide reliable, fact-driven information about the media because the American people deserve the truth. And one of the most important parts of the MRC is its CNS News website. It's an absolute must-read for conservatives. I read it every day. It's bookmarked. And you can learn more about CNS News and the rest of the MRC at mrclevin.org. That's mrclevin.org. CNS News covers the stories the rest of the media ignores or distorts. They're doing an exceptional job covering the coronavirus. Unlike CNN and MSNBC, the folks at CNS News actually cover the news coming out of the president's daily briefings instead of attacking the president all day, every day. If you read CNS News like I do, 
You'll be up to speed on all the news, not just the coronavirus. They're all over Nancy Pelosi's conduct and the craziness going on in Virginia with Governor Ralph Blackface Northam signing a series of radical laws on abortions, on guns, on LGBT rights, more on guns today, and all kinds of other things. He's totally out of control. And this is the kind of coverage you'll only find over at the MRC CNS News website. So go to mrclevin.org to learn more. That's mrclevin.org to learn more. This issue of the nursing homes was an issue over a month ago. You didn't see it on the Drudge Report. You didn't see it on Mediaite. You didn't see it in the New York Times or the Washington Post. These left-wing sites that monitor this show, apparently they didn't, they didn't choose to monitor the phone call that I received on March 26th. You heard the desperate voice of a woman who's the medical director of a nursing home You heard what she said, but because it was Cuomo, they covered it up. They're still covering it up. Here's the New York Times piece that came out two and a half hours ago by Kim Barker and Amy Julia Harris. Dil Nibor has lived in a nursing home for about a year ever since he had a bad bout of pneumonia. Now the 80-year-old man has not only his own health to worry about, but that of his neighbors at the Poughkeepsie, New York residence. Four new patients recently arrived at the hospital with COVID-19. That is, they arrived at the nursing home. They were admitted for one reason, according to staff members. A state guideline says nursing homes cannot refuse to take patients from hospitals solely because they have the coronavirus. So the New York Times is five weeks late. Why? Because now there's no avoiding the fact, as these numbers come out, that we have carnage in these nursing homes and assisted living facilities. I don't like them playing Russian roulette with my life, said Mr. Niebuhr, who is on oxygen. It's putting us at risk. I'm 80 years old with underlying problems. Everybody here has an underlying problem. Disease caused by the virus has killed more than 10,500 residents and staff members at nursing homes and long-term care facilities nationwide. According to a New York Times analysis, that's 20%. That's over 20%. And let me tell you, that's low. Low. That's nearly a quarter of the deaths in the United States from the pandemic. On Saturday, Governor Cuomo of New York described nursing homes as a feeding frenzy for this virus. Wow. And yet he's the one who put out the order. And that's where they leave it on Cuomo. Sounds like he's been drinking disinfectant for most of his life. But states are increasingly turning to nursing homes to relieve the burden on hospitals and take in COVID-19 patients. What burden on hospitals? We have hospital beds all over the country. All over the country. That are empty. Now, let's go on. It's amazing. You got Cuomo there talking about my mother. She's elderly. My mother, she's elderly. When he orders, his administration orders, these COVID-19 patients who come out of the hospital go into the nursing homes. Although there's no evidence so far that the practice has allowed infections to spread in nursing homes, listen to these idiots. They're called body bags. There's plenty of evidence. And advocates fear that it's only a matter of time 
One lawsuit in New Jersey alleges that a worker was likely to have been sickened by a COVID-19 patient readmitted from a hospital. At the epicenter of the outbreak, this is the New York Slimes. New York issued a strict new rule last month. Nursing homes must readmit residents sent to hospitals with the coronavirus and accept new patients as long as they are deemed medically stable. I can't tell you how furious I am. We reported this, or the caller reported this, five weeks ago. The New York Times is based in New York. Rather than doing hit pieces on me at ProPubica and National Pubic uh, uh, Radio and all the other losers and all the rest, you should listen to what's going on in this program. You don't have to agree with my opinion, but I deal in real facts. And so did that caller. California and New Jersey have also said that nursing homes should take in such patients. And New Jersey is the second worst case of the virus. Homes are allowed to, let's see here, to turn patients away if they can claim they can't care for them safely. But administrators say they worry that refusing patients would provoke regulatory scrutiny. And advocates say it could result in a loss of revenue. Now, here's the bottom line. These are nursing homes. They are not ICUs. If one of their uh, residents has to get special health care, they don't do it in the nursing home. They send them to the ICU. So they're expecting these nursing homes on a dime to turn into ICUs. They can't. They're not built for that. They don't have the personnel for that. They don't have the doctors for that. They don't have the resources for that. They're nursing homes. In contrast to these states, Connecticut and Massachusetts designated certain facilities for COVID-19 patients alone, considered the safest way to free up hospital beds. The Washington Healthcare Association, which represents long-term care facilities in Washington State, has asked officials to adopt the similar policy. So far, they have not. In other words, these nursing homes and assisted living places are begging the governments, please don't send Virus-positive people into our populations. We do not have the ability to protect our residents. It's not a matter of not meeting the standards. They can't meet the standards. In a national survey released yesterday of almost 9,000 nursing homes, fewer than 10% said they were able to take in new COVID-19 patients from hospitals. The survey was done by Careport Health, a company that works with hospitals to manage the release of patients to long-term facilities. Now, Jay Lawrence, spokesman for the Grand Healthcare System, which has 17 homes in New York, including one in Poughkeepsie, said the company was doing everything possible to meet state needs and keep residents safe. said the virus had not spread from those initial four patients at Poughkeepsie to everyone else in the building. Still, he said... With COVID being everywhere, it's a very fluid situation. People are trying to be as vigilant as they can. No one knows where and how things are going to rear their ugly heads. And it goes on. And that's the end of the mention of, oh no, here we go. Whoever made this decision, whoever did this, I consider this a death sentence for all older patients. Whoever is in a nursing home. 
Mina Ibrahim, 31, a, phys- a physical therapist in New York City, works for agencies that have sent him to several nursing homes over the past month. All were admitting COVID-19 patients from hospitals while providing only limited protective equipment, he said. At one home, he helped check in new patients about five a day. He said 90% of them have been treated for coronavirus symptoms at hospitals. Again, he said, whoever made this decision, whoever did this, I consider this a sentence of death for the older patients. Whoever's in a nursing home. Why are people in nursing homes? Why do their families put them in nursing homes? Why do they send themselves to nursing homes? They pay enormous amounts of fun. Why? Because they can't care for themselves anymore. Because they're typically ill, as opposed to assisted living. They're very ill in many cases. That's why they're in nursing homes. So you have elderly people who have morbidities. Elderly people who have morbidities. Richard Malott, executive director of the Long-Term Care Community Coalition in New York, an advocate group for residents, said he had heard of several nursing homes that had declined, but the vast majority said it had a tremendous financial incentive to take in new patients. So now the nursing homes are going to be attacked. Oh, they had a financial incentive to take them in. They were ordered to take them in. Ordered to take them in. And with all the exposure to all their patients and so forth and residents, there's no financial incentive to take them in. None. None. The financial incentive is to run a, a healthy facility where your patients aren't dying two, three, four, five dozen at a time. And the vulnerability of these nursing homes was known very, very early. And same with this assisted living areas. And the elderly generally. Two-thirds of the people so far, two-thirds who've died from this virus, are over 70. And a bigger percentage are over 60. The percentage of people who die who are under 25 is statistically, almost statistically non-existent. Of course there are cases. I'm talking about statistically almost non-existent. So when you're looking at a country and you're trying to set policies, or you're looking at a state and you're trying to set policies, you move your resources where they need to go. And you do that whether it's a military operation, a business operation, you're running a school system, you're running your household, whatever it is. You don't have a blanket closed down. This is why I will forever blame Fauci and Burks for their decisions in this regard. The president's following the science. The science he's getting is from them. From them. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. I need five hours, six hours today to do everything I need to do, but that's not going to happen. And given all that's happening in the world, we've decided to make some exciting changes at Levin TV. We'll now be doing special programming once per week, exclusive for Levin TV and Blaze TV subscribers. Now, these episodes are going to take a lot more work and a lot more production resources. I'm doing these special episodes, but we think you're really going to enjoy them. We're also going to be doing a second episode per week that will air on Thursday 
nights right after my radio show. So it'll be a scheduled show at 9 p.m. Eastern time on Pluto TV. Pluto TV on the Blaze TV channel 250. So you can see we're trying to expand and expand our reach, particularly at this crucial time. So this is going to allow us to expand our reach and influence, which is critical, especially this year with what's going on in this historically crucial election. Now, this episode will also be available to our Levin TV subscribers live and on demand. So remember, we can only continue to produce this programming if you continue to participate. And right now, we've made it easier for you to do that, easier than ever before. We're going to give you a rate. Those of you who can afford it, those of you who can't participate in this, I understand. You can still go to Pluto TV. But those of you who can, we're going to lower the rate for our network below what it's ever been. You know, when I started Levin TV and there were no other hosts, there was no network, we charged $69 a year. Now we're going to charge $69 a year for the first year of your annual subscription. We're going to slash it from $99 to $69 for the entire network. That's $5 and change per month for the first year. And here's how you do it. I want to encourage you to do it. Go to levintv.com, L-E-V-I-N-T-V.com, enter promo code LEVIN, and you'll get the $30 off your annual subscription. So if you're able to do it, really now's the time to take advantage of this. That's LevinTV, L-E-V-I-N-T-V dot com. And, in the enter, and you enter the promo code L-E-V-I-N and uh, you'll get the $30 off the annual subscription. And we're ubiquitous. On virtually every device you have, you can watch us. Whether it's smart TV, whether it's your PC, your laptop, your Macintosh, your Android, your iPhone, uh, your iPad. I can't think of everything, but we're everywhere. Probably even airing on your fillings, come to think of it. And so we have scientists out there who I brought to your attention. Dr. David Katz in his March 20th piece. And Dr. Ioannidis from Stanford. Men who I believe should have been part of the task force. And I posted on Mark Levin Show Facebook and Mark Levin Show Twitter about a month or five weeks ago, whatever it was, suggesting that they expanded task force to include these men, but it wasn't done. And so, of course, Dr. Ioannidis, who's been right from day one, more right than Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks, is now under attack. According to the Wall Street Journal piece, Stanford scientist John Ioannidis finds himself under attack for questioning the prevailing wisdom about lockdowns. Cuomo's not under attack. Newsom's not under attack. The moron in New Jersey's not under attack. The clown in Illinois and Michigan, they're not under attack. No, they're celebrated. They believe in real health. So they're destroying their hospital systems. They're destroying the jobs, destroying the businesses. You don't have to do that anymore, boys and girls. You don't have to do it anymore. We know the vulnerable populations. The rest of us can mitigate, and yet we can still walk, chew gum at the same time. But I want you to hear what they're doing to this brilliant Stanford scientist, John Ioannidis, because he doesn't go with the mob. I'll be right back. From the Westwood One Podcast Network. Ladies and gentlemen, this final hour of the podcast is sponsored exclusively by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. Now over 2 million conservative members strong, AMAC believes in and stands up for the values that we care about, faith, family, and freedom. Thank you for listening, and please support AMAC. And you can become a member at amac.us slash join. He's here. 
is here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. On this Friday evening, our number, 877-381-3811, John Ioannidis is a hardworking man. He's a genius. Works at Stanford. He's got more degrees and has had more positions than anyone I can think of. And here is the Wall Street Journal piece pointing out that he's under attack. Defenders of coronavirus lockdown mandates keep talking about science. We're going to do the right thing, not judged by politics, not judged by protests, but by science. California Governor Little Dabble Duya said this week. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer defended an order that, among other things, banned the sale of paint and vegetable seeds, but not liquor or lottery tickets. Each action has been informed by the best science and epidemiology council there is, she wrote in an op-ed. But scientists are almost never unanimous, and many appeals to science are transparently political or ideological. Consider the story of John Ioannidis, a professor at Stanford School of Medicine. His experience is wide-ranging. He juggles appointments in statistics, biomedical data, prevention research, and health research and policy. Google Scholar ranks him among the world's 100 most cited scientists. He has published more than 1,000 papers, many of them meta-analyses, reviews of other studies. Yet he's now found himself pilloried because he dissents from the theories behind the lockdowns because he's looked at the data and found good news. In a March article, I tell you, look what we unleashed here, Mr. Producer. In a March article for Stat News, which the Wall Street Journal would never have heard of if I hadn't pointed it out, Ioannidis argued that COVID-19 is far less deadly than modelers were assuming. He considered the experience of the Diamond Princess cruise ship, which we've talked about at length, which was quarantined February 4 in Japan. Eight of 700 infected passengers and crew died. Based on the demographics of the ship's population, the doctor estimated that the U.S. fatality rate could be as low as 0.025% to 0.625%. And put the upper bound at 0.05% to 1%, comparable to that of the seasonal flu. If that's the true rate, he wrote way back on March 17, locking down the world with potentially tremendous social and financial consequences may be totally irrational. It's like an elephant being attacked by a house cat. Frustrated and trying to avoid the cat, the elephant accidentally jumps off a cliff and dies. I need his 54 likes metaphors, a New York native who grew up in Athens. He also teaches comparative literature and has published seven literary works. I'm telling you, this is one of the greatest geniuses I've ever met. Poetry and fiction, the latest being an epistolary novel in Greek. Epistolary. In his spare time, he likes to fence, swim, hike, and play basketball. Early in his career, he realized that the common, denom- the common denominator for everything that I was doing was that I was very interested in the methods, not necessarily the results, but how exactly you do that, how exactly you try to avoid bias, how you avoid error. When he began examining studies, he discovered that few headline-grabbing findings could be replicated, and many were later contradicted by new evidence. 
Scientific studies are often infected by biases. He said several years ago, along with one of my colleagues, we had mapped 235 biases across science. And maybe the biggest cluster is biases that are trying to generate significant, spectacular, fascinating, extraordinary results, he says. Early results tend to be inflated. Claims for significance tend to be exaggerated. Let's see. Dr. Ioannidis calls the coronavirus pandemic the perfect storm of that quest for very urgent, spectacular, exciting, apocalyptic results. And as you see, apparently our early estimates seem to have been tremendously exaggerated on many fronts. Chief among them was a study by modelers at Imperial College London, which predicted that more than 2.2 million coronavirus deaths in America absent any control measures or spontaneous changes in individual behavior. That study was published March 16, the same day the president released its 15 Days to Slow the Spread initiative, which included strict social distancing guidelines. Dr. Ioannidis says the imperial projection now appears to be a gross overestimate. They used inputs that were completely off in some of their calculation, he says. If data are limited or flawed, their errors are being propagated through the model. So if you have a small error and and you exponentiate that error... The magnitude of the final error in the prediction or whatever can be astronomical. He said, I love models. I do a lot of mathematical modeling myself, but I think we need to recognize that they're very, very low in terms of how much weight we can place on them and how much we can trust them. They can give you a very first kind of mathematical justification to a gut feeling. But beyond that point, depending on models for evidence, I think it's a very bad recipe. Modelers sometimes refuse to disclose their assumptions or data, so their errors go undetected. L.A. County predicted last week that 95.6% of its population would be infected by August if social distancing orders were relaxed. But the basis for this projection is unclear. Ainidi says, at a minimum, we need openness and transparency in order to be able to say anything, and they won't release the information. Why? Most important, what we need is data, he says. We need real data. We need data on how many people are infected so far, how many people are actively infected, what is really the death rate, how many beds do we have to spare, how has this changed? That will require more testing. Dr. Ioannidis and colleagues at Stanford last week published a study on the prevalence of the coronavirus antibodies in Santa Clara County. Based on blood tests of 3,300 volunteers in the county, which includes San Jose, California's third largest city, During the first week of April, they estimated that between 2.5% and 4.16% of the county population had been infected. That's 50 to 85 times the number of confirmed cases and implies a fatality rate of between 0.12% and 0.2%, consistent with that of the Diamond Princess cruise ship. You may recall Dr. Ioannidis was on Life, Liberty, and Levin the other week. The study immediately came under attack. Some statisticians questioned its methods. Critics noted this study sample was not randomly selected, and white women under 64 were disproportionately represented. The Stanford team adjusted for the sampling bias by weighting the results by sex, race, and zip code. But the study acknowledges that other biases, such as bias favoring individuals in good health capable of attending other testing sites, or bias favoring those with prior COVID-like illnesses seeking antibody confirmation are also possible. But the overall effect of such biases is hard to ascertain. Ainides admits his study isn't bulletproof and says he welcomes scrutiny. But he's confident the findings will hold up. He says antibody studies from around the world will yield more data. 
A study published this week by the University of Southern California and the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health estimated that the virus is 28 to 55 times as prevalent in that county as confirmed cases are. A New York study released yesterday estimated that 13.9% of the state and over 21% of the city have been infected. That's 10 times the confirmed cases. Yet most criticism of the Stanford study has been aimed at defending the lockdown mandates against implication that they're an overreaction. You see, ladies and gentlemen, you have politicians and so-called experts both who are invested in the lockdown mandates. And so they're not going to follow any more science. They're going to follow ideology. There's some sort of mob mentality here operating that they just insist that this has to be the end of the world and it has to be that the sky is falling, says Ioannidis. It's attacking studies with data based on speculation and science fiction. But dismissing real data in favor of mathematical speculation is mind-boggling. In part, he blames the media. He says, we have some evidence that bad news, negative news, are more attractive than positive news. They lead to more clicks. Check out the Drudge Report, or actually don't. They lead to people being more engaged. And of course, we know that fake news travels faster than true news. So in the current environment, unfortunately, we have generated a very heavily panic-driven, horror-driven, debt-driven show type of situation. The news is filled with stories of healthy young people who die of coronavirus, but Ainidis recently published a paper with his wife, an infectious disease specialist at Stanford as well, that shows that this would be classic man-bites-dog story. The couple found that people under 65 without underlying conditions accounted for only 0.7%, well under 1%, of coronavirus deaths in Italy and 1.8% in New York. He said, compared to almost any other cause of disease I can think of, it's really sparing young people. I'm not saying that the lives of 80-year-olds do not have value. They do. But there's far, far, far more young people who commit suicide. So if the panic and attendant disruption continue, he says, we're going to see many young people committing suicide just because we're spreading horror stories with COVID-19. There's far, far more young people who get cancer and will not be treated because, again, they will not go to the hospital to get treated because of COVID-19. There's far, far more people whose mental health will collapse, he says. He argues that public officials need to weigh these factors when making public health decisions. And more hard data from antibody and other studies will help. He said, I think that we should just take everything that we know, put it on the table, and try to see, okay, what's the next step? See what happens when we take the next step. I think this sort of data-driven feedback will be the best. So you start opening, you start opening your schools, you can see what happens. We need to be open-minded, we need to just be calm, allow for some error, it's unavoidable. We started, we started from knowing nothing. We know a lot now, but we still don't know everything. And ending the piece, he says, cautions against drawing broad conclusions about the efficacy of lockdowns based on national infection and fatality rates. He says, it's not that we have randomized 10 countries to go into lockdown and another 10 countries to remain relatively open and see what happens and do that randomly. Different prime ministers, different presidents, different task force makes decisions. They implement them in different sequences at different times and different phases of the epidemic. And then people start looking at this data and they say, oh, look at that. This place did very well. Why? Oh, because of this measure. This is completely, completely opinion-based. 
People are making big statements about lockdown, save the world, he said. I think that they're immature. They're tremendously immature. They may have worked in some cases. They've had no effect in others. And they may have been damaging still in others. And most disagreements among scientists, he notes, reflect differences in perspectives, not facts. Some find the Stanford study worrisome because it suggests the virus is more easily transmitted, while others are hopeful because it suggests the virus is less lethal. He says it's basically an issue of whether you're an optimist or a pessimist. Even scientists can be optimists and pessimists. Probably, usually, I'm a pessimist, but in this case, I'm probably an optimist. What he's saying is, I think more people have had this virus than we know. And because of that, I'm an optimist when it comes to the fatality rate, which will be much, much lower as a result. I'll be right back. AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens, is one of the fastest growing organizations in America. Now over 2 million conservative members strong, and I'm one of them. AMAC believes in and stands up for the values that we constitutional conservatives care about. More than talk, AMAC fights. A full-time presence in Washington, AMAC pushes back against reckless spending, disasters like Medicare for All, and the expanding reach of the federal government. And beyond advocacy, joining AMAC gives you access to a wealth of benefits and discounts, including special member-only rates on car insurance, travel discounts, cell phone plans, and a hell of a lot more. And if that's not enough, you'll get AMAC's bi-monthly magazine full of insightful articles on issues that matter to most of us, we conservatives. As I said, I'm an AMAC member, and you should be too. Join today at amac.us. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S. Stop supporting the liberal agenda that the other 50-plus organization has been pushing for. Join AMAC instead, A-M-A-C dot U-S. Representative Tom McClintock from California. How are you, sir? Just fine, Mark. Thanks for having me. Uh, Tom McClintock, you've been very outspoken against these uh, iron-fisted lockdowns, uh, and you're very concerned about what's happening to the people in your state and in the country, the economy, businesses, and jobs. I'm going to give you an opportunity to explain that. Well, it's pretty simple. Uh, We have now plunged tens of millions of Americans into unemployment and poverty, uh, and in the process, set in motion events that are going to create many poverty-related deaths in the future. There was a study a few years ago by Columbia University that noted that about uh, 4.5% of all deaths in this country are poverty-related. We have just plunged tens of millions of Americans into that condition, and nobody seems to be counting those uh, deaths that we are setting in motion right now in the calculus of this this radical idea of locking up an entire population in a free nation for fear that they might catch a, uh, a disease. Tell the rest of the country, uh, your governor in California, he's really locked that state down, hasn't he? Oh, very much so. And, and uh, the, 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 the toll on people's lives uh, is, is absolutely uh, extraordinary. Uh, 3.2 million Californians have lost their jobs. That's 20% of the state workforce. Less than half of Los Angeles County residents now have jobs. And who's Newsom put in charge of the reopening? This socialist quack job, Tom Steyer, who's vowed to remake California society as, quote, a fair, green, and prosperous future. Mm -hmm. And um, 
you know, it, it, it doesn't appear the lockdown's doing all that great today and yesterday. As, as exactly. uh, The curve is not so flat right now, is it? Exactly. California ordered a complete lockdown of its population back on March 19th. Now, the established timeline from infection to death is about 25 days. That would have been April 13th. So, question, if California's radical internment measures were effective, shouldn't we have expected to see a dramatic decline in deaths soon after that date? The fact is we haven't. On the contrary, the worst daily death tolls thus far in this epidemic occurred in nine of the last 11 days after April 13th. So every person who succumbed in these, the worst days for fatalities in this state so far, every one of them would have contracted the disease after the shutdown took effect. And if you look at some of the studies now, uh, there's a, a professor out of um, Tel Aviv University, uh, uh, Isaac Ben Israel. He just published a paper comparing the case and mortality curves in those countries that ordered strict lockdowns like ours and countries that kept their economies open like Sweden. And he's found no significant difference in the, in the mortality curves. And yet I notice our politicians keep attacking Sweden. I've looked at Sweden, too. Why do they keep attacking Sweden? Sweden's numbers are relatively comparable to ours, and they're going to have this herd immunity well before we do. Uh, I think they're attacking me because Sweden is demonstrating what a free nation should do uh, in response uh, to an epidemic like this. Why is the governor of Georgia coming under such a vicious attack? For the same reason. Uh, the same reason that Christy Nome in South Dakota is coming under attack. And by the way, uh, uh, Ben Israel is not the only uh, uh, statistician who's noted that there's really no difference. Uh, a statistician out of uh, Kentucky State University, uh, Wilfred Riley, uh, just published a paper looking at the differences between the states like California that completely destroyed their economies and states like South Dakota that kept their economies open. And once again, no significant statistical difference in the course of the viruses that runs its course. And don't we have enough data now, Tom McClintock, to tell us the populations that are really threatened and the populations that aren't? And they say follow the science, but they're not following the science, these, these governors, are they? Well, exactly right. Here in California, we've had two serology studies. I think you'd mentioned one earlier today, Stanford for Santa Clara County, SC for L.A. County. Both of them looked at the actual prevalence of the infections, and they calculated a case fatality rate. That's the percentage who actually die from the disease. And what they found is it's a fraction of what the so-called experts were telling us and what all of these dire models were based upon. The experts told us that it was at least a 1% fatality rate. It turns out it's somewhere between 12 one-hundredths and 27 one-hundredths of 1%. That's the equivalent of a bad flu season. And yet, when Dr. Fauci says this is seasonal, uh, there's going to be another wave, that's really a consequence of his his promoted decisions, isn't it? That is, everybody huddle in place pretty much, as much of the people as possible. Well, when you have so many people who don't have the virus, they're going to get the virus at some point, aren't they? Well, exactly. And, and ultimately, you know, couldn't that be just as easily regulated by, by individuals? If you don't feel safe, don't leave your house. If, if mm -hmm. you feel safe leaving your house with a mask, well, then wear a mask. If you don't feel comfortable getting too close to other people, well, don't get too close to other people. The choices made by an 80-year-old with emphysema living in New York City are going to be very different than those made by a healthy college student in South Dakota. Only a fool would claim the omniscience to make an informed judgment for every person in every circumstance in every community. All right. 
All right, Congressman, you're terrific. We appreciate it. That's Tom McClintock. We'll be right back. AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens, is one of the fastest growing organizations in America. Now over 2 million conservative members strong, and I'm one of them. AMAC believes in and stands up for the values that we constitutional conservatives care about. More than talk, AMAC fights. A full-time presence in Washington, AMAC pushes back against reckless spending, disasters like Medicare for All, and the expanding reach of the federal government. And beyond advocacy, joining AMAC gives you access to a wealth of benefits and discounts, including special member-only rates on car insurance, travel discounts, cell phone plans, and a hell of a lot more. And if that's not enough, you'll get AMAC's bi-monthly magazine full of insightful articles on issues that matter to most of us, we conservatives. As I said, I'm an AMAC member, and you should be too. Join today at amac.us. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S. Stop supporting the liberal agenda that the other 50-plus organization has been pushing for. Join AMAC instead. A-M-A-C dot U-S. can clone the others, but there's only one Mark Levin, and you can call him at 877-381-3811. Look, tonight's show is focused on liberty, the economy, humanity. We're relying on some governors, relying on really two medical scientists, public health officials, And that's enough of this. Now, when I go out, sometimes I'll wear a mask, sometimes I won't. I rarely wear gloves, but I always have my hand sanitizer with me. That's not going to change. That's not going to change. Small businesses know how to run their businesses. They want to be sued. They want to make sure their their staff is well cared for. They want to make sure their customers and patients are well cared for. But we've seen some very, very bad decisions by Cuomo, by some of these other governors that have cost lives and will continue to cost lives. And so we should be praising the governor of Georgia for his efforts. As I've said three days ago, we should be praising Governor DeSantis for his efforts. And they've kept their states in pretty decent condition compared to some of the other states. You don't destroy your country to save your country. Now, early decisions, I understand. But now that we have real data, real information, there's no excuse. There's no excuse. And so, the real herd mentality is the attack on these people who think for themselves. Governors and scientists are really looking at data. They're not ideologically based. They're not driven by past decisions. They're saying, look, I'm looking at the data. This isn't really the way we should be doing this. But Cuomo needs to be held to account. What he did to these nursing homes and the way he's managed that state, mismanaged it, is a damn shame. The wonderful people in New York. I love the people in New York. And what he's done to that state and what that has done to that city is a sin. By the way, we're about to have a, if it is what it is, and Newsbusters has broken this, we're about to have a uh, audio played for you that is going to uh, knock your socks off. Her name is Tara Reid. She's a former staffer to Senator Joe Biden. And she's accused him of molesting him. 
of criminal sexual assault. And she told some family members at the time, and she didn't know who to go to or what to do, so she left her job, and she was in her 20s. There's a video that's been unearthed by Newsbusters late this afternoon of a phone call into the Larry King show on CNN on August 11, 1993. And um, is believed with, uh, with significant backing that the caller was Tara Reid's mother who's since passed away, passed away in 2016. And she mentioned in an interview with The Intercept, did Tara Reid, that she had mentioned to her mother what Joe Biden had done to her. And her mother was a feminist, an activist, and was quite appalled by it all, as you can imagine. So you can get the video at Newsbusters, and Mr. Producer, we will link to it at Newsbusters. So Newsbusters gets all the credit in the world because they're the ones that unearth it. And again... This isn't first-hand news that I found. This is just something that, that, that uh, we found on the, on the Newsbusters site. So I want you to listen to this. This should be the big story in the Sunday shows. In addition to B- Joe Biden's incapacities, mental incapacities, he's not capable of being president of the United States, but this is the greatest cover-up scam in American history. Here we go. 1993, August 11, The Larry King Show. The caller is said to be Tara Reed's mother. Go. San Luis Obispo, California. Hello. Yes, hello. Um, I'm wondering what um, uh, a, a staffer uh, would do, do besides go to the press in Washington. My daughter has just left there uh, after working for a prominent senator and could not get through with her problems at all. And the only thing she could have done was go to the press, and she chose not to do it out of respect for him. Or she had a story to tell, but out of respect for the person she worked for, she didn't tell it. That's true. But these are the people who do come to the Lois Romanos, right? The Mm -hmm. staff worker who says, I want to let you know about what's going on, even with my boss or the guy down the hall. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these people have a sense of obligation. They feel that this public official should be accountable if it's something wrong. They're whistleblowers to the press. Exactly. Now, she outlined, Reed did... The allegations made against her is written up here by the Daily Wire last month in a podcast interview saying that the alleged incident happened when a supervisor called her into the office and instructed her to take a gym bag to Joe Biden. She said he was down towards the Capitol and he'll meet you. I went down and I was heading down towards there. He was at first talking to someone and then they went away. We were in like the side, like the side area. And he just said, hey, come here, Tara. I handed him the thing, he greeted me, he remembered my name, and then we were alone. It was the strangest thing. There was no like exchange, really. He just had me up against the wall. I was wearing a skirt, a business skirt. It happened all at once. His hands were on me and underneath my clothes. I'm not going to get into the details. He was, and in addition to, I'll put it this way, fondling her, He was kissing me at the same time, and he was saying something to me. He said several things. I just can't remember everything he said. Reed claimed that Biden asked her if she wanted to, quote, go somewhere else, and that she responded by rejecting his advances, to which he says Biden responded by saying, come on, man, I heard you liked me. 
Now, Reed has filed a police report. She filed it earlier this month with the Sexual Assault Unit in Washington, D.C. Now, she's not a porn star. She's not represented by a uh, slip-and-fall-now-disbarred lawyer. And she's very upset over the fact that Joe Biden is the prohibitive likely nominee of the Democrat Party for President of the United States. And I will tell you this. This is a concrete allegation. You don't know exactly if something's happened or not. Because you need an entire process, legal process, to figure these things out. But then when you look at the Kavanaugh case, which was so preposterous, the multiple allegations and how they came forward and who the lawyers were involved and all the rest of the sleaze there. And now you look at this situation. And now you look at this situation. And so we'll see how thoroughly the media pursue this. They'll see how thoroughly they ask Joe Biden about it. So far, he's, he's gotten a pass. He's getting a lot of passes, Joe Biden. Because everybody knows he's not mentally fit to be president of the United States. He's simply not. You cannot have a president who is not mentally fit. I mean, we have the 25th Amendment for a president who becomes somewhat incapacitated while they're in office. We don't really have anything where a party tries to put somebody in office when in fact they're mentally incapacitated before they're elected. Before they're elected. So I wanted you to be aware of that. There's a piece in the opinion section of the Wall Street Journal by Tom Cogden, chairman of the Institute for International Monetary Research, University of Buckingham, England. Big headline, top of the opinion page. Get ready for the return of inflation. I have been warning about this. I've been telling other hosts they need to start talking about this. I started talking about this as soon as they passed that $2.2 trillion, and it's only gotten worse. And by the way, this Sunday I have two great guests, Arthur Laffer and Chris DeMuth. Arthur Laffer, as you know, has been an economist for many presidents. And Chris DeMuth, who used to head AEI, wrote the piece on how Donald Trump has approached this pandemic as few other presidents have or would. So we're going to get deep into the Constitution and deep into economics. So I hope you'll join us at 8 p.m. Sunday, Eastern, or 5 p.m. Pacific Eastern. I'm not going to just have a, you know, three, four, five guests going around the corner regurgitating everything that's going on. This is deep stuff, and I think you're going to like it a lot. But here's the piece. The economists Milton Friedman and Anna Jacobson-Schwartz demonstrated in a monetary history of the United States that a collapse in the quantity of money was the main cause of the Great Depression. And what he says here, this is the opposite. The Fed's actions have increased the quantity of money in the U.S. economy at a blistering rate. We've never seen anything like this in American history. Ever. The highest rate of monetary expansion in U.S. history. And we will pay a price for this. I've said it. You'll hear others say, 
As I said uh, two years ago, uh, as I said last month, they say nothing. They sit on their thumbs. I have to blaze the trail. Look, I get it. I understand it. I'm not patting myself on the back, but I do get annoyed. We'll be right back. AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens, is one of the fastest growing organizations in America. Now over 2 million conservative members strong, and I'm one of them. AMAC believes in and stands up for the values that we constitutional conservatives care about. More than talk, AMAC fights. A full-time presence in Washington, AMAC pushes back against reckless spending, disasters like Medicare for All, and the expanding reach of the federal government. And beyond advocacy, joining AMAC gives you access to a wealth of benefits and discounts, including special member-only rates on car insurance, travel discounts, cell phone plans, and a hell of a lot more. And if that's not enough, you'll get AMAC's bi-monthly magazine full of insightful articles on issues that matter to most of us, we conservatives. As I said, I'm an AMAC member, and you should be too. Join today at amac.us. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S. Stop supporting the liberal agenda that the other 50-plus organization has been pushing for. Join AMAC instead. A-M-A-C dot U-S. Would have been nice if ProPubica and National Pubic Radio and Mediate and all the other frauds, our hosts on radio and TV, had jumped into this nursing home issue five weeks ago when we did. Maybe we could have saved some lives. But no, no, now they'll get into it. Now they'll position themselves and position other people. It's really disgusting. The whole damn thing is disgusting. I want to quickly go to Vivian on Long Island, New York, the great WABC. I don't have a lot of time, Vivian, but I wanted to get to you, so go right ahead. Hi, Mark. Uh, thank you for taking my call. I just want to let you know that my mother passed away at a nursing home here in Long Island, and uh, conveniently, uh, Governor Cuomo passed the New York and the New York uh, State Legislature. They passed the Emergency Disaster Treatment Protection Act, which gives all these facilities um, immunity. And so you have no recourse uh, based on what decision this man made. That's correct. And I want to say how terribly sorry I am, because I know when you put your parents or a parent in a nursing home, it's hard enough. But when, uh, you know, you've got a governor that's protecting his own tuchus and then issuing a directive to expose them to a virus. I mean, it's just so outrageous. It was outrageous five weeks ago, and it's more outrageous now. I'm sorry, Vivian. It's okay. Thank you. And God bless you and your family. Uh, How much time do I have there, Mr. Producer? 20 seconds isn't enough. Uh, But we do have a person here, food service director on subway cleaning, who says they have not been cleaning the subways and they have not been cleaning them properly in New York City. I mean, what is the federal government supposed to do? Hire the janitors? Hire the cleaning services? Can't this jackass DeCamio... Do his job? Can't this jackass Cuomo do his job? The answer is no. They can't do their jobs. And they get covered from their media. They get covered from the New York Times and the Democrats. And we're supposed to go broke even further to subsidize them. In America, in honor of you.
week's officially over. The weekend begins now. Please don't forget Life, Liberty, and Levin, Sunday, 8 p.m. Eastern. Very, very important show. We salute our armed forces, police officers, firefighters, emergency personnel, doctors, nurses, technicians. All of you folks out there bringing us food and taking care of us. God bless you. Good night, Spritey, Griffey, Pepsi, Smokey, Zelda, Gigi. We miss you and we love you. And good night, Dad. Good night, Mom. And good night, Leo. Folks, God bless you. And I'll see you Sunday night and here on Monday. From the Westwood One Podcast Network. <laughs>